Good evening and welcome to the God Debate. My name is Malcolm Phelan, and together with Joseph Stanfield, Arnav Dutt, Mike Ray, and the Dean's Fellows, we've organized the debate that you're about to see. Now, whether you're here tonight to hear an exchange of views, an enlightening discussion, or just a good show, I know you're not here to hear a long speech from an undergraduate, so I will keep this short. First, allow me to recognize those in the Notre Dame community who made this debate possible. The God Debate II was sponsored by the Institute for Scholarship in the Liberal Arts and the Henkel's Lecture Series with additional generous support by the College of Arts and Letters, the College of Science, and the College of Business, Campus Ministry, the Classics Department, the History Department, the Program of Liberal Studies, and Chemistry, the Center for Civil and Human Rights, ILS, and the Department of German and Russian, the Center for Philosophy of Religion, the Center for Undergraduate Scholarly Engagement, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Glynn Family Honors Program, and Learning Beyond the Classroom. Finally, I would just like to read a quick passage that beautifully sums up the reason why, why we are here tonight. Kenneth Burke writes this in The Philosophy of Literary Form. Imagine that you enter a parlor. You come late. When you arrive, others have long preceded you, and they are engaged in a heated discussion, a discussion too heated for them to pause and tell you exactly what it is about. In fact, the discussion had already begun long before any of them got there, so that no one present is qualified to retrace for you all the steps that had gone before. You listen for a while until you decide that you have caught the tenor of the argument, and then you put in your oar. Someone answers, you answer him. Another comes to your defense. Another aligns himself against you, to either the embarrassment or gratification of your opponent, depending on the quality of your ally's assistance. However, the discussion is interminable. The hour grows late, and you must depart. And you do depart, with the discussion still vigorously in progress. So now, please join me in welcoming two more to our discussion. Sam Harris and William Lane Craig. And please welcome our moderator, Professor Mike Ray from the Center for Philosophy of Religion. Thanks, Malcolm. Welcome to the second installment of the God Debate. My name is Michael Ray. I'm a professor of philosophy here at the University of Notre Dame and the director of the Center for Philosophy of Religion, one of the sponsors of tonight's event. The Center for Philosophy of Religion was founded in the late 1970s with the aim of promoting cutting-edge research on topics in the philosophy of religion and in distinctively Christian philosophy. One of our goals in sponsoring the God Debate series is to try to bring some of the very issues discussed among our research fellows to a wider non-academic audience and in a format that will hopefully be fun and engaging. Our show tonight, as you already know, is a debate between William Lane Craig and Sam Harris, coming together for the very first time to discuss the question, are the foundations of moral values natural or supernatural? William Lane Craig is Research Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology in La Mirada, California. He is best known among philosophers for his extensive and influential work in the philosophy of time and the philosophy of religion. He is known to the wider public as someone who is able to articulate and defend the doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that is highly accessible 
but also philosophically and theologically rigorous. He became a Christian at the age of 16, pursued undergraduate studies at Wheaton College, and holds two earned doctorates, one in philosophy from the University of Birmingham and one in theology from the University of Munich. He has authored or edited over 30 books, as well as over 100 articles in professional journals of philosophy and theology. Known as one of the four horsemen of the new atheist movement, Sam Harris is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Moral Landscape, The End of Faith, and Letter to a Christian Nation. The End of Faith won the 2005 Penn Award for Nonfiction. Mr. Harris's writing has been published in over 15 languages. He and his work have been discussed in Newsweek, Time, The New York Times, Scientific American, Nature, Rolling Stone, and many other journals. His writing has appeared in Newsweek, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, The Economist, The Times London, The Boston Globe, The Atlantic, The Annals of Neurology, and elsewhere. Mr. Harris is a co-founder and CEO of Project Reason, a nonprofit foundation devoted to spreading scientific knowledge and secular values in society. He received a degree in philosophy from Stanford University and a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. The structure of tonight's debate will be as follows. Each debater will take 20 minutes for his opening speech, followed by rebuttals of 12 minutes and eight minutes respectively, and then closing uh, speeches of five minutes each. At the conclusion of the debate, we will have about 30 minutes for questions from the audience. If you would like to ask a question, line up behind one of the two microphones in front or in the balcony. We're letting Notre Dame students ask the first four questions tonight, so if you are not a Notre Dame student and somehow find yourself at the front of the Q&A line, please allow a student to go ahead of you. Time will be kept strictly. There is a timekeeper in the front who can be seen by both speakers, and once each speaker's time has elapsed, he will be given at most 15 seconds to finish his final sentence before being rudely interrupted by me, the time enforcer. <laughs> because we are keeping the time strict, we ask you to hold all applause and other indications of agreement or disagreement, cheering, crowd surfing, and the like, until the very end of the debate. Please remember that flash photography, videotaping, and active cell phones are all prohibited. Finally, remember that Notre Dame is the world's number one institution in the philosophy of religion and also has one of the world's best theology departments. Any questions you don't get to ask during the 25 or 30 minute Q&A, you can ask of your local faculty in the days and weeks to come. And now on with the show. Well, good evening. It's wonderful to be here at the University of Notre Dame, and I want to begin by Bill. thank. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I need to. We're going to begin each speech with me checking with the timekeeper oh. to make sure that he's ready, and then the timekeeper is going to hit go, and then you get to go. All right. So, so you Sorry. go when I say begin. Sorry for jumping the gun. Professor Craig gets uh, gets the first word in the debate. Uh, Dr. Harris gets the last word. Timekeeper, are you ready? This is 20 minutes. Begin. I want to begin by thanking the Center for Philosophy of Religion for the invitation to participate in tonight's debate. The question of the correct foundation of morality is one that is not only of tremendous academic interest, but also one that has enormous practical application for our lives. Now, to begin with an important point of agreement, 
Dr. Harris and I agree that there are objective moral values and duties. To say that moral values and duties are objective is to say that they are valid and binding independent of human opinion. For example, to say that the Holocaust was objectively evil is to say that it was evil even though the Nazis who carried it out thought that it was good. And it would still have been evil even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in brainwashing or exterminating everyone who disagreed with them so that everybody thought the Holocaust was good. One of the great merits of Dr. Harris's recent book, The Moral Landscape, is his bold affirmation of the objectivity of moral values and duties. He inveighs against what he calls the overeducated, atheistic, moral nihilists and relativists who refuse to condemn as objectively wrong terrible atrocities like the genital mutilation of little girls. He rightly declares, if only one person in the world held down a terrified, struggling, screaming little girl, cut off her genitals with a septic blade and sewed her back up, the only question would be how severely that person should be punished. What is not in question is that such a person has done something horribly, objectively wrong. The question before us this evening then is what is the best foundation for the existence of objective moral values and duties? What grounds them? What makes certain actions objectively good or evil, right or wrong? In tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, if God exists, then we have a sound foundation for objective moral values and duties. And second, if God does not exist, then we do not have a sound foundation for objective moral values and duties. Now notice that these are conditional claims. I shall not be arguing tonight that God exists. Maybe Dr. Harris is right, that atheism is true. That wouldn't affect the truth of my two contentions. All that would follow is that objective moral values and duties would then, contrary to Dr. Harris, not exist. So let's look at that first contention together. If God exists, then we have a sound foundation for objective moral values and duties. Here, I want to examine two subpoints with you. First, theism provides a sound foundation for objective moral values. Moral values have to do with what is good or evil. On the theistic view, objective moral values are grounded in God. As St. Anselm saw, God is by definition the greatest conceivable being, and therefore the highest good. Indeed, he is not merely perfectly good, he is the locus and paradigm of moral value. God's own holy and loving nature provides the absolute standard against which all actions are measured. He is, by nature, loving, generous, faithful, kind, and so forth. Thus, if God exists, objective moral values exist, wholly independent of human beings. Second, 
Theism provides a sound foundation for objective moral duties. On a theistic view, objective moral duties are constituted by God's commands. God's moral nature is expressed in relation to us in the form of divine commandments, which constitute our moral duties or obligations. Far from being arbitrary, God's commandments must be consistent with his holy and loving nature. Our duties, then, are constituted by God's commandments, and these, in turn, reflect his essential character. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, the whole moral duty of man can be summed up in the two great commandments. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength and with all your soul and with all your heart and with all your mind. And second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this foundation, we can affirm the objective rightness of love, generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality, and condemn as objectively wrong selfishness, hatred, abuse, discrimination, and oppression. In summary, then, theism has the resources for a sound foundation for morality. It grounds both objective moral values and objective moral duties. And hence, I think it's evident that if God exists, we have a sound foundation for objective moral values and duties. Let's turn then to my second contention, that if God does not exist, then we do not have a sound foundation for objective moral values and duties. Consider first the question of objective moral values. If God does not exist, then what basis remains for the existence of objective moral values? In particular, why think that human beings would have objective moral worth? On the atheistic view, human beings are just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, and which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On atheism, it's hard to see any reason to think that human well-being is objectively good, any more than insect well-being or rat well-being or hyena well-being. This is what Dr. Harris calls the value problem. The purpose of Dr. Harris's book, The Moral Landscape, is to explain the basis on atheism of the existence of objective moral values. He explicitly rejects the view that moral values are platonic objects existing independent of the world. So, his only recourse is to try to ground moral values in the natural world. But how can you do that, since nature in and of itself is just morally neutral? On a naturalistic view, moral values are just the behavioral byproducts of biological evolution and social conditioning. Just as a troop of baboons exhibit cooperative and even self-sacrificial behavior because natural selection has determined it to be advantageous in the struggle for survival, so their primate cousins, Homo sapiens, have evolved a sort of herd morality for precisely the same reasons. As a result of sociobiological pressures, 
there has evolved among Homo sapiens a sort of herd morality which functions well in the perpetuation of our species. But on the atheistic view, there doesn't seem to be anything that makes this morality objectively binding and true. The philosopher of science, Michael Roos, reports, the position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. If we were to rewind the film of human evolution and start anew, people with a very different set of moral values might well have evolved. As Darwin himself wrote in The Descent of Man, if men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, there can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. For us to think that human beings are special and our morality is objectively true is to succumb to the temptation to speciesism, that is to say an unjustified bias in favor of one's own species. If there is no God, then any reason for regarding the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens on this planet as objectively true, seems to have been removed. Take God out of the picture, and all you seem to be left with is an ape-like creature on a speck of dust beset with delusions of moral grandeur. Richard Dawkins' assessment of human worth may be depressing, but why, on atheism, is he mistaken when he says there is at bottom no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. So how does Sam Harris propose to solve the value problem? The trick he proposes is simply to redefine what he means by good and evil in non-moral terms. He says, we should define good as that which supports the well-being of conscious creatures. So, he says, questions about values are really questions about the well-being of conscious creatures. And therefore, he concludes, it makes no sense to ask whether maximizing well-being is good. Why not? Because he's redefined the word good to mean the well-being of conscious creatures. So, to ask, why is maximizing creatures' well-being good is on his definition the same as asking, why does maximizing creatures' well-being maximize creatures' well-being? It's just a tautology. It's just talking in circles. So, 
Dr. Harris has quote unquote solved the value problem just by redefining his terms. It's nothing but wordplay. At the end of the day, Dr. Harris isn't really talking about moral values at all. He's just talking about what's conducive to the flourishing of sentient life on this planet. Seen in this light, his claim that science can tell us a great deal about what contributes to human flourishing is hardly controversial. Of course it can, just as it can tell us what is conducive to the flourishing of corn or mosquitoes or bacteria. His so-called moral landscape, which features the highs and lows of human flourishing, isn't really a moral landscape at all. Thus, Dr. Harris has failed to solve the value problem. He hasn't provided any justification or explanation for why, on atheism, moral values would objectively exist at all. His so-called solution is just a semantical trick of an arbitrary and idiosyncratic redefinition of the terms good and evil in non-moral vocabulary. Second question, does atheism provide a sound foundation for objective moral duties? Duty has to do with moral obligation or prohibition, what I ought or ought not to do. Here, the reviewers of the moral landscape have been merciless in pounding Dr. Harris's attempt to provide a naturalistic account of moral obligation. Two problems stand out. First, natural science tells us only what is, not what ought to be, the case. As philosopher Jerry Fodor has written, science is about facts, not norms. It might tell us how we are, but it wouldn't tell us what is wrong with how we are. In particular, it cannot tell us that we have a moral obligation to take actions which are conducive to human flourishing. So, if there is no God, what foundation remains for objective moral duties? On the naturalistic view, human beings are just animals and animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills the zebra, but it doesn't murder the zebra. When a great white shark forcibly copulates with a female, it forcibly copulates with her, but it doesn't rape her. For none of these actions is forbidden or obligatory. There is no moral dimension to these actions. So if God does not exist, why think we have any moral obligations to do anything? Who or what imposes these obligations upon us? Where do they come from? It's very hard to see why they would be anything more than a subjective impression ingrained into us by societal and parental conditioning. On the atheistic view, certain actions such as rape and incest may not be biologically and socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development have become taboo, that is, socially unacceptable behavior. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that such acts are really wrong. Such behavior goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. On the atheistic view, the rapist who chooses to flout 
the herd morality, is doing nothing more serious than acting unfashionably. The moral equivalent, if you will, of Lady Gaga. If there is no moral law giver, then there is no objective moral law. And if there is no objective moral law, then we have no objective moral duties. Thus, Dr. Harris's view lacks any source for objective moral duty. Second problem, ought implies can. A person is not morally responsible for an action which he is unable to avoid. For example, if somebody shoves you into another person, you're not responsible for bumping into him. You had no choice. But Sam Harris believes that all of our actions are causally determined and that there is no free will. Dr. Harris rejects not only libertarian accounts of free will, but also compatibilistic accounts of freedom. But if there is no free will, then no one is morally responsible for anything. In the end, Dr. Harris admits this, though it's tucked away in the end notes of his volume. Moral responsibility, he says, and I quote, is a social construct, not an objective reality. I quote, in neuroscientific terms, no person is more or less responsible than any other for the actions they perform. His thoroughgoing determinism spells the end of any hope or possibility of objective moral duties because on his worldview, we have no control over what we do. Thus, on Dr. Harris's view, there is no source of objective moral duties because there is no moral lawgiver and no possibility of objective moral duty because there is no free will. Therefore, on his view, despite his protestations to the contrary, right and wrong do not really exist. Thus, Dr. Harris's naturalistic view fails to provide a sound foundation for objective moral values and duties. Hence, if God does not exist, we do not have a sound foundation for morality, which is my second contention. In conclusion, then, we've seen that if God exists, we have a sound foundation for objective moral values and objective moral duties. But that if God does not exist, then we do not have a sound foundation for objective moral values and duties. Dr. Harris's atheism thus sits very ill with his ethical theory. What I'm offering Dr. Harris tonight is not a new set of moral values. I think by and large we share the same applied ethics. Rather, what I'm offering is a sound foundation for the objective moral values and duties that we both hold dear. Thank you very much. Dr. Harris now has 20 minutes. Timekeeper, are you ready? Begin. Well, first let me say it's an honor to be here at Notre Dame, and I'm very happy to be debating Dr. Craig, the uh, one Christian apologist who seems to have put the fear of God into many of my fellow atheists. Uh, I've actually gotten more than a few emails this week that more or less read, brother, please don't blow this. Uh, so you will be the judge. Uh, now, as many of you know, I've spent a fair amount of time 
criticizing religion. Uh, and one of the perks of this job is that you immediately hear from all the people who think that criticizing religion is a terrible thing to do. Uh, and strangely, the reason people rise to the defense of God is not that there's so much evidence that God exists, but that they believe that belief in God is the only intellectual framework for an objective morality. Um, and clearly, Dr. Craig is uh, among their number. Now, the sense is that without the conviction that moral truths exist, that, that words like right and wrong and good and evil actually mean something, humanity will just lose its way. Uh, that's the fear, and I, I actually share that fear. I've come to believe that this, this concern that many religious people have of the erosion of secular morality is not an entirely empty one. Now, I once spoke at a, a, an academic meeting on these themes, and I, and I said, as I will say tonight, that once we understand morality in terms of human well-being, we'll be able to make strong claims about which behaviors and, and ways of life are, are good for us and which aren't. Uh, and I cited as an example the sadism and misogyny of the Taliban as, as an example of a, a, a worldview that, that was less than perfectly conducive to human flourishing. And it turns out that to denigrate the Taliban at a scientific meeting is to court controversy. And after my remarks, I, I fell into debate with another um, invited speaker. And this is more or less exactly how our conversation went. She said, how could you ever say that forcing women to wear burqas is wrong from the point of view of science? I said, well, because I think it's pretty clear that right and wrong relate to human well-being. And it's just as clear that forcing half the population to live in cloth bags and beating them or killing them when they try to get out is not a way of maximizing human well-being. And she said, well, that's just your opinion. And I said, okay, well, let's make it even easier. Let's say we found a culture that was literally removing the eyeballs of every third child okay, at birth. Would you then agree that we had found a culture that was not perfectly maximizing human well-being? And she said, it would depend on why they were doing it. So after my eyebrows returned from the back of my head, uh, I said, okay, well, let's say they're doing it for religious reasons. Let's say they have a scripture which says every third should walk in darkness or some such nonsense. Okay. And then she said, well, then you could never say that they were wrong. Okay, and so I, I, you should know, I was talking to someone who has a deep background in science and philosophy. She's actually since been appointed to the President's Council on Bioethics. She's one of 13 people advising President Obama on all of the ethical implications of advances in medicine and, and uh, related science and technology. And she had just delivered a perfectly lucid lecture on the moral implications of, of neuroscience for the courts. And she was especially concerned that we could be subjecting captured terrorists to lie detection neuroimaging technology. Uh, and she viewed this as, as really an unconscionable violation of cognitive liberty. Uh, so on the one hand, her moral scruples were very finely calibrated to, to recoil from the slightest perceived misstep in ethical terms in our war on terror. And yet she was quite willing to forgive some primitive culture its fondness for removing the eyeballs of children in its religious rituals. And she seemed to me quite terrifyingly detached from the very real suffering of, of millions of women in Afghanistan at this moment. 
So I see this double standard as a problem. And strangely, this is precisely the erosion of basic common sense that many religious people are worried about. I hope it'll be clear to you at the end of this hour that religion is not an answer to this problem. A belief in God is not only unnecessary for a universal morality, it's, 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 it is itself a source of moral blindness. Now, it's widely believed that there are two quantities in this universe. There are facts on the one hand, and of course, science can give us our most rigorous discussion of these. But then there are values, which many people like Dr. Craig think science can't touch. Okay, questions of meaning and morality and what life is good for. Now, of course, everyone thinks that science can help us get what we value, okay, but it can never tell us what we ought to value. Okay, and, and, and therefore, it cannot, in principle, be applied to the most important questions in human life, questions like how we should raise our children or what constitutes a good life. Now, it's thought from the point of view of science, and Dr. Craig just gave voice to this opinion, that when we look at the universe, all we see are patterns of events. Just one thing follows another. Okay, and, and there's no corner of the universe that, dis, that declares certain of its events to be good or evil or right or wrong. Apart from us, I mean, our minds, we declare certain events to be better than others. But in doing that, it seems that we're merely projecting our own preferences and desires onto a, a reality that is intrinsically value-free. And where do our notions of right and wrong come from? Well, clearly they've been drummed into us by evolution, that the product of these apish urges and, and social emotions, and then they get modulated by culture. We take sexual jealousy, for instance. I mean, this is a, an attitude that has been bred into us over millions of years. Okay, our, our ancestors were highly covetous of one another, despite the fact that everyone was covered with hair and had terrible teeth. <laughs> and this, this possessiveness now gets enshrined in various cultural institutions like the institution of marriage. Okay, so therefore, a statement like, it's wrong to cheat on one's spouse, Okay, it seems a mere summation of these contingencies. It seems like it, it, it's an improvisation on the back of biology. Okay, it seems that, that, that from the point of view of science, it can't really be wrong to cheat on your spouse. Okay, this is just, just how apes like ourselves worry when we learn to worry with words. Okay, now here is where religious people like Dr. Craig begin to get a little queasy, as I think they should. Okay. And many see no alternative but to insert the God of Abraham, an Iron Age God of war, into the clockwork as an invisible arbiter of moral truth. It is wrong to cheat on your spouse because Yahweh deems that it is so. Which is curious because in other moods, Yahweh is perfectly fond of genocide and slavery and human sacrifice. I must say, it's pretty amusing to hear Dr. Craig in his opening remarks say that I'm merely focused on the flourishing of sentient creatures on this planet. Okay, if that's a sin, I'll take it. Okay, one wonders what Dr. Craig is focused on. Now, incidentally, you should not trust Dr. Craig's reading of me. Half the quotes he provided from me as though I wrote them were quotes from, from people I was quoting in my book and often to different effects. So you'll have to read the book. Uh, now, in, in, in claiming that values reduce to the well-being of conscious creatures, as I will. Uh, I'm, I'm introducing two concepts, consciousness and well-being. 
Now let's start with consciousness. This is not an arbitrary starting point. Imagine a universe devoid of the possibility of consciousness. Imagine a universe entirely constituted of rocks. Okay, there's clearly no happiness or suffering in this universe. There's no good or evil. Value judgments don't apply. For, for changes in the universe to matter, they have to matter, at, le at least potentially, to some conscious system. Okay, what about well-being? Well, the well-being of conscious creatures and the, and the link between that and morality may seem open to doubt, but it shouldn't. Okay, here's the only assumption you have to make. Imagine a universe in which every conscious creature suffers as much as it possibly can, as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. Okay, I call this the worst possible misery for everyone. Okay, the worst possible misery for everyone is bad. If, if, if the word bad applies anywhere, it applies here. Now, if you think the worst possible misery for everyone isn't bad, or maybe it has a silver lining, or maybe there's something worse, I don't know what you're talking about. And what's more, I'm pretty sure you don't know what you're talking about either. The, what I'm saying is the, the minimum standard of moral goodness is to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. If we should do anything in this universe, if we ought to do anything, if we have a moral duty to do anything, it's to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. And the moment you admit this, you admit that, that, that all other states of the universe are better than the worst possible misery for everyone. You have the, the worst possible misery for everyone over here and all these other constellation of experiences arrayed out here. And because the experience of conscious creatures is dependent in some way on the laws of nature, there will be right and wrong ways to move along this continuum. It will be possible to think you're avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone and to fail. You can be wrong in your beliefs about how to navigate this space. So here's my argument for moral truth in the context of science. Questions of right and wrong and good and evil depend upon minds. Okay, they depend upon the possibility of experience. Minds are natural phenomena. They depend upon the laws of nature in some way. Okay, morality and human values, therefore, can be understood through science because in talking about these things, we are talking about all of the facts that influence the well-being of conscious creatures. In our case, we're talking about genetics and neurobiology and psychology and sociology and economics. Now, I view this space of all possible experience as a kind of moral landscape with peaks that correspond to the heights of well-being and valleys that correspond to the lowest suffering. And the first thing to realize is that there may be many equivalent peaks in this space. There may, may be many different but morally equivalent ways for human beings to thrive. But there will be many more ways not to thrive. There will be many more ways to fail to be on a peak. There are clearly more ways to suffer unnecessarily in this world than to be sublimely happy. Now, the Taliban are still my favorite example of a culture that is struggling mightily to build a society that's clearly less good than many other societies on offer. The average lifespan for women in Afghanistan is 44 years. They have a 12% literacy rate. They have the highest, almost the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality in the world, and almost the highest fertility. So, this is one of the best places on earth to watch women and infants die. It seems to me perfectly obvious 
that the, the best response to this dire situation, which is to say the most moral response, is not to throw battery acid in the faces of little girls for the crime of learning to read. Now, of course, of course this is common sense to us, uh, unless you happen to be a bioethicist on the President's Commission at this moment. <laughs> but I'm saying, at bottom, it is also, these are also truths about biology and neurology and psychology and sociology and economics. It is not unscientific to say that the Taliban are wrong about morality, that the moment we notice that we know anything at all about human well-being, we have to say this. Okay, now, some people with a little philosophical training may be tempted to say, but what if a father wants to burn off his daughter's face with battery acid? You know, who are you to say that he's not as moral as we are? What if he has an alternate conception of well-being that's just as legitimate? Or who's to say that we should care about the well-being of little girls? This is the kind of email I get, incidentally. Now, moral skeptics of this kind, and, and Dr. Craig has essentially endorsed this position, in a way, without God, think that the only way to judge one person's values to be wrong are with respect to another person's values, and all such judgments have to be on a par. Okay, this is not true. There are many ways for my values to be objectively wrong. They can be, they can be wrong with respect to deeper values that I hold. They can be wrong with respect to, to deeper values that I would hold if I were only a deeper person. It's clearly possible to value things that will reliably make you miserable in this life. It's clearly possible to be cognitively and emotionally closed to experiences that you would want if you were only intelligent and knowledgeable enough to want them. It is possible not to know what one is missing in life. So things can be right or wrong or good or evil, quite independent of a person's opinions. Now, some of you might worry that I haven't defined well-being enough. How can, how can something this loose as a concept be the, the, the benchmark of, of uh, objective values? Well, consider by analogy the concept of physical health. Physical health is very difficult to define. You know, it, it used to be that if you were healthy, you could expect to live to the ripe old age of 40. You know, now our lifespan, our life expectancy has doubled in the last 150 years. What, what does health mean? Okay, well, it has something to do with not always vomiting, okay, not being in excruciating pain, not running a fever. Okay, but how, how fast should a healthy person be able to run? Okay, that question might not have an answer. Okay, but this does not make the, the, the question of health vacuous. Okay, it, it doesn't make it merely a matter of opinion or of cultural construction. Yeah, the distinction between a healthy person and a dead one is about as clear and consequential as any we ever make in science. Okay, and notice that no one is ever tempted to attack the philosophical underpinnings of medicine with questions like, well, who are you to say that not always vomiting is healthy? What if you meet someone who wants to vomit, and he wants to vomit until he dies? Okay, how could you argue that he is not as healthy as you are? In talking about morality and human values, I think we really are talking about mental health and the health of societies. And the truth is, science has always been in the values business. We simply cannot speak of facts without resorting to values. I mean, consider the simplest statement of scientific fact. Water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. 
This seems as value-free an utterance as human beings ever make. But what do we do when someone doubts the truth of this proposition? Okay, all we can do is appeal to scientific values, the value of understanding the world, the value of evidence, the value of logical consistency. What if someone says, well, that's not how I choose to think about water. Okay, I'm a biblical chemist, and I read in Genesis 1 that God created water before he created light. So I take that to mean that there were no stars. So there were no stars to fuse helium and hydrogen into heavier elements like oxygen. Therefore, there was no oxygen to put in the water. So either God created, either water has no oxygen or God created special oxygen to put in the water. But I don't think he would do that because that would be biblically inelegant. Okay, what, what can we say to such a person? Okay, all we can do is appeal to scientific values. And if he doesn't share those values, the conversation is over. If someone doesn't value evidence, what evidence are you going to provide to prove that they should value it? If someone doesn't value logic, what logical argument could you provide to show the importance of logic? Okay, so this, this, I think this split between facts and values should look really strange to you on its face. I mean, what are we really saying when we say that science can't be applied to the most important questions in human life? Okay, we're saying that when we get our biases out of the way, when we, when we most fully rely on clear reasoning and honest observation, when, when intellectual honesty is at its zenith, well then the, those efforts have no application whatsoever to the most important questions in human life. That is precisely the mood you cannot be in to answer the most important questions in human life. It would be very strange if that were so.